Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we have industry experts with the insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that affects your agency and organization. Today, we have Brian Glass, Director of Strategic Services at Invisium. Good day, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Glad to have you on. I think we have a lot of interesting things to discuss as it relates to the OWASP Top 10 2017, which was just released. Um, glad to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, it kind of caused a bit of a stir this time around, I think. Exactly. So I want to leave with that. You know, basically, you kind of alluded to over the last several weeks, there's been a growing concern, especially in the OWASP community, as well as the AppSec community in general, regarding the OWASP Top 10 for 2017. You've been very out front and outspoken about it. You've written several blogs about it musings on the OWASP top 10. You did a part one and part two about the specific issues with data collection, analysis, and approach. Can you share with our listeners specific issues you identified in your blog? Sure. Um, well, first off, I want to thank all the uh, contributors that actually spent the time to send their data in. Uh, without their efforts, we wouldn't have anything to talk about at the moment. But after spending a good bit of time with that data, there's some interesting things that we found looking at it. Starting off, uh, looking at all the metadata within the data call, there was some insight we could glean on some of the testing methodologies. But still, even even with that, it's tough to compare the data sets together. Some of the data that came in uh, was tagged for 2014 and some was 2015. And some was actually spread over both years without really a delineation. So I couldn't really look at doing a year-over-year analysis of the data without making a lot of assumptions. In some of the data, some of the data was vetted to weed out false positives, and some was not. We don't know which applications count. Of all the applications counted, were they all unique or were some retests? And most of the places I know that I've worked with or talked to don't directly align with CWEs when they do the reporting. So when they were putting the data together for the data call, uh, there's going to be some level of manual effort to align the data with CWEs. And that's it's unlikely that's going to be consistent across the board. But really, some of the big, big couple things that I noticed out of this was the data is purely prevalence of vulnerabilities. And anybody who's been doing this for a while knows there's a lot of missing factors to understand the risk that these vulnerabilities represent, like business or system impact, likelihood, exploitability. And some of the data is clearly from tools reporting every instance of a vulnerability that was found, whether or not it's exploitable. While other data is clearly from human testers that consolidate the instances into a single reported vulnerability, which begs the question, which is more meaningful? Total number of vulnerabilities found or the percentages of applications that had at least one vulnerability. We had a, there's a little bit of discussion on the comments on the part two of the blog about this. But honestly, from my perspective, I, I think it's both because when it gets down to it, there's a big difference in the root cause and the cost to fix. If the vulnerability is systemic because the design never planned for the control versus the design was there and somebody missed one or two implementation points. So given these concerns that, that you just listed or mentioned regarding the top 10, what do you recommend to your customers and the AppSec community at large regarding the usage of the top 10 in their organizations? Well, from my perspective, for the ones who can treat it as an awareness document, by all means, do so. There's absolutely useful information in there. It does shed light on a number of different areas. But the struggle 
that I've had with it and many others is the breadth and the depth of the different categories can vary wildly. One category may be injection while another is cross-site scripting. And so the first is a pretty broad category covering a good number of different vulnerabilities while the other is a very specific subset. During your analysis, you mentioned that there was no formal methodology for categorizing the data. And the question I want to know is, what dangers do you see in not having a formal methodology for, for, for something that's widely used as a top 10 to categorize the data? Well, I mean, you run into a lot of risk of misinterpretation. Um, and we see that a lot, honestly. Um, and even within CWEs, you know, there's overlap and duplication to some extent within them. Um, one of the things I've started looking at is the OWASP has another project called the Application Security Verification Standard, or ASVS, um, and it lays out in more detail a number of controls um, that I think can be mapped if it isn't already with CWEs. You know, as, as I'm working through this, I'm starting to surface thoughts on whether the you know, if we need to start aligning the top 10 with the ASVS and it becomes, you know, some subset of that so that you have somewhere to move on beyond the top 10. How much of the data that you analyze really went into forming the actual top 10? Because I think part of the data collection was a quantitative approach, but I think it seems there's a qualitative approach in terms of when, you know, selecting the items or vulnerabilities to address as part of the top 10. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, if you look at the you know publicly released data set in Excel, uh, there is data supporting you know prevalence data supporting a number of the top ten categories. But the authors have also made it clear that to them it's an awareness document, and so a couple of the vulnerabilities were added, or a couple of the categories were added rather that they felt represented more current issues. Uh, rather than, because we don't, you know, we're looking at data from 2014 and 2015. So it's relatively current, but it's still not now. So I think it's a mix of the two, but I think that's also largely because, you know, it's originated as an awareness document and to some extent by the authors is still treated as an awareness document. I posted on LinkedIn today, the, I saw an article about using a top 10 for compliance purposes. I know many industries and organizations have adopted the top 10 as a standard as opposed to its intended motivation as an AppSec awareness document. The question I want to know, what's the danger in that, given that the issues you've just identified and discussed? Honestly, from my perspective, I don't believe a, lot, a number of the current and proposed top 10 categories can be tested to the level that would su survive a compliance audit. We've, ag we've driven a lot of tool and product companies to tell you that they can bring you into compliance with the top 10, but I'm not alone in finding that's highly unlikely. With the additions of even broader categories like insufficient attack protection and underprotected APIs in this release candidate, I think we're even further away from being able to complain, claim compliance with that. Uh, I mean, because I... I've not seen a standard for what somebody would consider is sufficient attack protection. But in the past, you know, companies, when it was aligned with PCI DSS and similar, I mean, companies do what they can and work with their QSAs to try and figure out, you know, what is enough for passing. Yeah, that's the danger in terms of uh, using compliance to kind of validate 
you know, one security posture because, you know, everyone's trying to do what they can to have a passing grade as opposed to doing the right things, the diligent things in terms of securing their environment and their data. Brian, the, the top 10 is about what, 10 years old now? How long is, how old is the top 10? The first one was in 2003. So it's getting old. It's getting up there. Right. So it's been around for about a little over a decade, right? So and we, we pretty much seen the same top 10 over the course of 10 plus years. Why do you think that's the case? From, I mean, from my experience and talking with different folks, there's a number of different theories or opinions on it. I mean, honestly, we basically solved SQL injection over a decade ago, but yet it's still one of the more prevalent issues we see that are, you know, linked to the root cause of data leakage or breaches. Um, from my perspective, it's a couple of things. Many of the mainstream enterprise level languages and frameworks like .NET or Java have built in defenses for a number of different vulnerabilities. But we still have a lot of legacy code and a lot of the newer languages are built without those protections in place at the framework level. And the second part that I feel strongly about is we're not teaching secure development practices in school. If you look online for most of the code snippets when you do a Google search, they're not the good secure versions of how to write code. They're just something that works. Having done development for many years, I mean, developers are under the gun. If they can find a solution that works for their requirement or user story, they'll drop it in and keep moving. I often say, you know, developers are forced to meet really stringent timelines and deadlines. And as you know, shortcuts, shortcuts are made. And as we make shortcuts, I think we accumulate technical debt, which which ultimately increases the cost to maintain software, which is a systemic problem that we're starting to see in a lot of large and even some of the medium sized to small uh, development organizations. For sure. But I also think, you know, on top of that, there's a core set of vulnerabilities that have persisted, like cross-site scripting and SQL injection. And at this point, they don't show a lot of signs of going away. But that kind of goes back a little bit on the data call. I would love to have similar data year over year so that we could actually have a decent idea of whether or not they're trending one way or the other. But I think there was a perception with the top 10, um, at least there had been historically, that if we wholesale change it every few years, that people would stop trying to align with it. Similar, you know, kind of like the reason why development shifted away or is shifting away from waterfalls, waterfall style to DevOps and Agile because, you know, we didn't like long development cycles where after a couple of years, somebody changed the pile of requirements when you were almost done. Right. That's that's quite interesting. I think, you know, a lot has been changing in the software development community. You know, I would love to see uh, a more scientific approach to the top 10 because I do think uh, there is, you know, with the accumulation of a really good data set, there may be some very interesting data uh, and analysis that can be done to help reinforce some of the things you mentioned, like uh, poor uh, coding practices that, that we see in a lot of organizations today that ultimately uh, is is the root cause of a lot of these uh, vulnerabilities as a result in the top 10. So the question now becomes, how do we expand, evolve, and improve the OWASP top 10 project going forward? I mean, from my perspective, we need to decide what it is. Um, it was originally built as an awareness document, and a number of people still see it as such, but when compliance and 
different standard organizations adopted as a standard, it's hard to continue to treat it as an awareness document. But in, in from my perspective, I mean, I don't know of another document that can actually be built freely by a community that has that level of penetration in the compliance standards. So in my opinion, we shouldn't tear it out and proclaim it as an awareness document. I mean, this is our chance to have a testable baseline standard or say, okay, you're going to give us, you know, a slot in your standard that says we get to define what the baseline is for secure development. We should absolutely take that on. But I mean, we need to figure out, you know, is it a top 10 list of the most prevalent vulnerabilities, the most dangerous vulnerabilities, some combination of the two? You know, I would love, like you said, I'd love to back it with data. I'd love to get a little more scientific with the data. I think we can define a data collection standard of sorts so that people can structure and map their data to match in a consistent manner. I also think we can get further in the data collection process to allow contributors to safely submit data. I mean, individual companies right now are reluctant to submit because it's kind of like viewed as airing dirty laundry. They're fearing backlash if somebody figures out and maps that a whole pile of vulnerabilities that they had uncovered and probably, you know, for the most part fixed before they went to production, hopefully, but they still fear some backlash of somebody coming back and saying, your development practices must be horrible. You found 12,000 cross-site scripting vulnerabilities last year. Yeah, that's the... That's the balance of, you know, I believe as tools become better and smarter and more intelligent, I think we're going to find more issues in software and and they're going to be more a, of a burden to really figure out what are the issues that really matters the most so the developers can really pivot into those, into those things and fix them uh, as part of their, their software development process. Hey, Brian, thanks for sharing your insight today. I think your blog really piqued my interest and I wanted to talk to you about it. You shared some really, really you know, pointed questions and uh, provided some good evidence in your analysis. I wanted to really share this with our listeners. I think going forward, you know, let me know how I can help in moving the top 10 forward and I do anything I can. And once again, thanks again. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. Keep up the good work. Take care. Thanks, you too. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. We want to thank our guest today, Brian Glass. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning into Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives with your host, Kevin Green. Until next time, peace.